Well, here we are. We are here. It is, we're just one week shy of ending our Anything But Ordinary series. It has been a lot of Anything But Ordinary. <laughs> but you know what? I, we've gotten good feedback. We have gotten good feedback. It sounds like some of you all have enjoyed this series, um, and I've loved spending so much time on narrative. So today we're going to talk about Moses' birth. Barry preached for us, and this will be the last time he preaches here until he comes back from his renewal leave. It's true. This will be the last time. Yep. <laughs> until hey, a little singing for free here. Yeah, wow. Well, let's hope that doesn't get copyright flagged. <laughs> I say that every week when I preach. Yeah. <laughs> we will catch you on the other side of the scripture and the sermon with some reflection. The scripture today is from Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through chapter 2, verse 10. I invite you to listen. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pitom and Ramesses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians subjected the Israelites to hard servitude and made their lives bitter with hard servitude in mortar and bricks and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. <laughs> but the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife even comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you should let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. 
The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Amen. Amen. Fabulous dramatic reading, wasn't it? <laughs> it really doesn't count as much when you have to ask for it. Come on. <laughs> well, we have been through a huge portion of the book of Genesis, that first book of our Bible, and we've heard the stories of God's promises to Abraham and Sarah and to all the descendants of those wild and crazy kids. We concluded our text from Genesis last week when Pastor Jenna Waggy preached on Joseph revealing his identity to and reconciling with his brothers. It all sort of wrapped up super well with rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> all was well with the world. So you may be thinking, wow, Barry's really fashionable this morning. In fact, I am wearing Barbie pink <laughs> because this text made me think, of course, about Barbie. <laughs> yep, Geneva, Lisa, and I went to see it last Saturday night. All I can say without giving too much of a reveal is lots of pink. <laughs> so I'm going for pink this morning. I can wear pink. Thank you. Lots of pink and a much broader view of the Barbie world than the shallowly beautiful model with permanent high-heeled feet, right? Barbie was astonishingly about lots of deep stuff, not the least of which had to do with how power was dealt with in, a, in diverse camps of gender identity. Who'd have thunk it? In Barbie land, two obvious kinds of power were immediately evident. The $2,000 suited aging white males of the Mattel board of directors and the submissive power the Barbies unwittingly gave to those kids, mostly little girls, who played with them. The board worked on power and profit and mostly little girls working on power of partnership slash playmanship, playmateship plus friendship. The movie wrestles with these matters largely and artificially along binary gender lines. Girls, boys, Barbies, Kens. And we know it's not the way the world is, right? But 
It's all good in Barbie land until one day stereotypical Barbie begins to horror of horrors feel things. <laughs> Hold all of that for a second, if you would, so we can slide back a few thousand years like 1200 BCE at the beginning of the reign of Ramesses II. So yeah, I'm going on eight-week renewal leave, and I am pulling out all the stops. We're going all the way back to Ramesses II. So you better buckle up, people. <laughs> Last week, Geneva left us with the tentative sort of reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. After that, in the chapters that remained in Genesis, Israel, the father of Joseph, not the modern nation state we know, Joseph, excuse me, Israel dies and his body is brought back to the land of promise, back to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their spouses. He is buried in a tomb in land Abraham bought specifically for family burials. And then the whole entourage goes back to Egypt and the brothers hedge their bets with Joseph because they're still a little freaked out that Joseph is reconciled. And they say, hey, Joe, just want you to know that dad said he wanted you to forgive us entirely for all the stuff that went on before between us. I mean, you knew we didn't really mean it, right? And they all embrace, and they forgive, and the Hebrew people get all jiggy with each other and multiply like rabbits, such that the text says, the Israelites were fertile and became, what are you laughing at? <laughs> the text says, the Israelites were fertile and became populous. Another translation says, got jiggy. They multiplied, grew dramatically, filling the whole land. Well, at least the whole land of Goshen. The victors in these stories always get to write the text, no exception here. And they're concerned to make clear that God's promise of a nation as great as the stars of the heavens, as great as the grains of the sand and the sea, is good as ever. The promise of God remains intact. So it's the opening scenes in Barbie when everything looks amazing. Barbie's waking and sleeping, they're playing tennis, they're going to space, they're being doctors, and everything their playmates said they could do and postured them to do. It was all good. It was all wonderful until it wasn't. Well, for the Hebrews, for the children of the promised, it was slavery, with moves fairly well dictated by authorities that were not their own. And so our text begins, as ominous pivot texts always do, with a dramatic sort of drop in the music to a minor key, and a much more serious voice now says, now, a king came to power in Egypt who did not know Joseph trouble here, right? Because Joseph and family had been depending on the Pharaoh that did know them. A quick little one-liner here that indicated that the protectors and protections and privileges enjoyed by Joseph and his father and his brothers and the entire family is going to go away and worse. The new pharaoh has taken the apparent hyperbole of the Hebrew storyteller seriously. The growth of the Hebrew nation in slavery struck more than a little bit of fear in the paranoid heart of pharaoh. 
So at first, at first, Pharaoh believes that the entire nation uh, believes that the entire nation shares his worry that the enslaved population would grow and join in strategies with enemy nations against Egypt and that the Hebrews would fight wars and escape. Pharaoh calls on all the people to make Egypt great again. And the nation responds by making Hebrew life and slavery even more miserable. Egyptian foremen heavily oppress workers and huge construction projects are completed with forced labor of those Israelite slaves. Hard labor, cruel labor, yet the Hebrew nation still continues to grow even under the weighty thumb of Pharaoh. So frustrated, Pharaoh calls on midwives to kill baby boys. It's not a fair thing to ask midwives to do, right? The midwives, represented by characters Shifra and Pua, play stereotypes about the Hebrews' back against... Try it again. These characters, the midwives, play stereotypes about the Hebrews' back against Pharaoh. They say, oh, oh, we tried, but you know how Hebrew women are. Women are not like, the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're strong, and they give birth before a midwife can even get there. Wink, wink. God treated the midwives well because God understood their faithfulness here, that they were giving faithful care. God granted them families of their own and continued to grow the nation under slavery. Real world stuff, right? I thought about that after Jess forced me to think more deeply about Barbie. It was at least twice a day that my colleague and friend Jess would say, have you seen it yet? I want to talk about it. Come on. So yeah, I saw it. And I have thought more deeply about it. See, Barbie is about a portal that develops a tear between Barbie land, where Barbies are Barbies and Kens are Kens, and the real world where all of the possibilities Barbies and Kens thought kids would glean from play that shows all the possibilities all Kens and Barbies and Adams and Margos turn out to be unreal. Unreal. The world is dominated by Kens that think it's all about them and Barbies who are largely subservient, like Egypt and Israel, only not. Only not because there are brave hearts there like Shifra and Pua in the scripture and like weird Barbie in the movie who dare to push back and, and, and uh, push back against unjust expectations that are ultimately deadly for everybody. The fixing of the world by Barbies and Kens or Benjamins and Shifra and Pua takes pushing back. It takes being clear about facts and not being driven by fears minimally and paranoia at the extreme. Birth of possibility comes when the traditional, the traditional feminine virtues of life, protection, nurture, growth, community become increasingly shared by all humans regardless of gender identity. Barbie is worth seeing as a very entertaining movie, yes, if you like pink. But it is particularly worth seeing because it holds a very revealing mirror up to ourselves and to our culture. 
The trouble with persistent patriarchy shows up everywhere in the radical e economic inequities between those of dominant culture uh, that sees as men and those, in, that those it sees as women. Problem is, we are a part. We are a part of the culture, so it is about what we individually see as men and women. A little hard for Sunday morning, right? A little heady? A little much, Pastor, before you go off on your eight-week jaunt? <laughs> Maybe. And yet the realities of power and gender are set before us, not only in Barbie, but right here in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh, in all of his power as king, calls on men to come down hard on the men of Israel to break them in body and spirit so that the growth of the Hebrew nation would slow down. Does it all because of his paranoia. And that growth does not happen. After all, it is God's intention that Israel would multiply and become great and become a light to all other nations. The men go along with Pharaoh. When that doesn't work, Pharaoh goes to the women, to the midwives, to kill off male babies, and it is the midwives who push back without Pharaoh even knowing it. And then Pharaoh goes a bit bonkers, technically speaking, and orders all of the people to throw every baby boy into the Nile River, but let the girls live. What a guy. Again, the compassion of females hides a baby in a basket, puts it in a position to be found by Pharaoh's daughter, provides the baby's birth mother as, as wet nurse until the baby had grown up and then was returned to the Pharaoh's daughter. And again, again, God has a child of the Hebrews planted within the Egyptian empire, first Joseph and now Moses. God has a way whenever we think there's no way. As the characters of Barbie took on divine qualities to break down stereotypes and break up the power block of patriarchy, so the stories of God's work in the world repeatedly and consistently move us away from power and personalities, away from systems that limit, limit the realizations of individual dreams and individual aspirations. God calls us, people of faith, to join the resistance. See, it doesn't end with the resistance of the midwives. Moses' mother resists in taking a risk of floating her newborn out into the tidewaters. He could drown. He could be discovered and killed. He could be ignored and left for animals. Resistance here looks passive, but it is very active risk-taking. And God, who has promised growth, enables life to come out of resistance. Inasmuch as God is not obviously present, present in the scene, men are not obviously present in the scene participating in the resistance. It is the women who model for us what resistance to injustice looks like. Those who are part of the culture of power and benefit from it rarely rise up to question that power, let alone resistance. Resist it. Women continue to resist in this space. The sister, the daughter, the preservers of life, the custodians of human possibility. So I'm going to ask you. I'm going to be gone for eight weeks. You've got time. Begin this week. Revisit the text. Pay attention to the power. Give yourself a gift and go see Barbie. <laughs> Wear pink. Pay attention to the power. Open up a newspaper paper or digital, don't care. Watch the news on TV, check out a news podcast, pay attention to where the power is and who's resisting. 
This week, pay attention to the systems of which you are a part. Political, business, economic systems, family systems. How do you silently accept power that oppresses or threatens? Where do you resist? What might God be calling you to do? How might God be calling you to be a system, a person of change within the system? What are you willing to risk to break down systems of threat or oppression? Just a little bit to leave you with before I go off and have a good time for eight weeks. <laughs> Amen. 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 I will, uh, Jess and I. So the question we ask each other each week, what did you want us to get from this? Oh, I thought, I thought the question was going to be, why, why do we do this anyway? Why do we do this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's start existential. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you want us to take away? Um, at the end of the day, I really wanted us to take away some, uh, some pressing stuff for us to be involved in as, as Christians in terms of changing... Um, if, generally, change the patriarchy uh, to get a more equitable and just society. Yeah. And it, that wasn't too much, was it? Was that a lot to ask of one sermon? Um, no, I loved it. Here for it. Big fan. Um, and I really loved the, uh, you know, you know I love Barbie, or I think Barbie's an interesting mechanism to have those kinds of conversations. Maybe I'd say that. Yeah. So I'm grateful um, that you tied that in, um, I think, really well to this story of oppression and resistance. And uh, rarely do we focus on the resistors in the story. So I'm glad that you highlighted them. Yeah, typically we tell the story like it, it's the most common story that we tell in, in children's um, Sunday school, at least Old Testament stories, right? Tell that you know, birth story as, as this kind of warm, tender, cuddly thing. And, and, and at one level it is, but that's such a minimal level. There's mm -hmm. so much going on in the story, and uh, I wanted to lift up really the paranoia of the Pharaoh that drives this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, and the paranoia that leads to oppression and, you know, I don't know, tyrannical forms of patriarchy and other sorts of governmental, you know, yeah. It was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot to Oppression, think about. Oppression, death. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how, and again, I think it had, had we had a follow-up class, I mean, I really would have wanted, wanted to draw more connections to what we're dealing with in the world right now, and, and because we know it most intimately, what we're dealing with in our own country in terms of um, politics that play heavy on, on paranoia and trying to set us up against one another. And doing, doing things that, you know, push to its limit, we start seeing kids thrown into the Nile mm -hmm. um, because we think we have to do that until, in order to preserve our power. Yeah, I mean, I think for many of us, although a follow-up class would have been lovely conversation, I, it was pretty easy to get there. It was pretty easy to think of the kids in the detention camps and, yep. you know, all sorts of refugees, and it made it very... Um, Visceral, which again, every week I say I love how these stories, they don't, um, they're just, they're, they're stories, but they don't pull any punches and they still speak to us, I think, uh, 
well. I'm not sure the word I'm looking for. <laughs> they speak good to us. They, yeah, they talk good to us today. Um, yeah, they speak to our, our shared experience. And I sometimes folks think scripture is not super relevant. And I just kind of be like, what? Like, this, this story is so incredibly relevant, I think. And I think you pointed that out well. Good. I, it was fun once I, I mean, you, you pushed me on the Barbie stuff. And, uh, but once, once I saw the movie, it, it kind of connected very well with this, with mm. this scripture. And um, I only had to rewrite the sermon once, so you know, it wasn't too bad. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Um, I will say, if you, if you would have had more time, and this is coming from um, uh, congregant and listener Drew, and I thought this too after he had mentioned it, how fun it would have been to think through more of uh, Pharaoh's daughter's role. Because, like, taking in a Hebrew baby after her dad was like, kill all them babies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that is wild. Yeah, there, there were... I know there was a lot. There right? was a lot there, and I could have gone down, all, you know, every one of those personalities. Yeah. And looking at the risks that each of them took. And the daughter took a huge risk. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't get any interplay between Pharaoh and daughter. It's no. just... This is, this is what I'm doing. And who knows whether she even told that story Yeah. within the family. She might not have, and it only were her closest like advisors or whoever surrounding her. Yeah, who knows? I do really appreciate um, the question you asked about what systems uh, we're a part of and uh, where the power is within those. And I'm... I'm guessing this for you, but I know for me, I've thought a lot about that as someone um, who's aligned within a very large institution um, that has been you mean discriminatory. You your, your big family? <laughs> yeah, the United <laughs> Methodist Church. Um, yeah, I've had to think a lot about that and, yeah. you know, waiting to get ordained. I thought a lot about that throughout the ordination process and what does it mean um, you know, kind of becoming a company man, you know, as it is, to... <laughs> as, it, as it were. <laughs> as it were. As it might be. Within the United Methodist Church, which I think right now has, uh, you know, discriminatory policies. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious, yeah, what your reflections are on that. Well, I, yeah. I mean, I, I'm happy to talk about that. You certainly know that my position within that is, um, is that I'm a resistor. Mm-hmm. And I'm a resistor within. Um, it's a big, it's a big, big system, mm-hmm. and we only get to impact what we can impact. Um, but you know, as as you do what you do in resistance, um, it's amazing how enough people surround you that you get lifted up into pos- positions of higher power, and your resistance means more. So I, you know, I've been chair of the board of our name ministry, which in our conference that's a pretty pretty big deal because it has to do with, with, um, with credentialing people like yourself who who are coming into ministry. It's not a flawless system by any means. Is it flawless? Did you experience that, that I, flaw, flaw, flawnessity? I did not experience it as flawless. Right. Uh, and it's it's a continual piece of work. It is a piece it of is work. A piece of work. Um, <laughs> And it only changes when resistance comes. You know, we were able to to change how we were gonna how we were gonna work with folks around sexuality and gender identity because 
there was a major push of resistance where we, we said this is, this is not, th these are not questions we are going to ask any longer um, of the board, uh, of people that come before the board. But those, I mean, those are small system, systemic changes that we make. And it's the same thing whether it's in the larger church, whether it's our family, you know, that the, our ability to change a family dynamic by resisting what the dynamic is, it's not perfect and it takes time. Mm -hmm. sometimes generations. Yeah. Well, I think that's um, key also. You know, I don't want to rail against... Um, oh, go ahead. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> cancel culture. Because, um, you know, sometimes I think people need to be canceled and they don't need our money and I wish them well and they're God's beloved children, but, like, I don't need to financially support them. But in more micro levels, the kind of levels that we actually see in the day-to-day -day or in our jobs or businesses... Um, it, you know, if you're an extreme people pleaser, resistance is hard and takes a lot of practice. If you're someone who likes to avoid conflict, um, you know, and most people, I think, uh, I'd say most people would probably say that about themselves. I don't think I'm one of those people. <laughs> I, I, I don't experience you that way. Um, yeah, I, and so it's been interesting talking to some of my friends who are would perhaps define themselves as people pleasers about what that actually looks like for them and the the immense internal struggle that it takes to resist something that's already in motion um, even if you know it's wrong or you don't want to be complicit with it well you know it's the old physics right the object in motion remains in motion motion unless there's a, a force that works on it to change its mm -hmm. its its direction um, it's tough in the church because we sort of identify the minimal piece of what it is to be church in America is being filled with people who are nice to each other. Yes. And, and nice to each other means that you take the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't believe something, you go along because it's just easier to get along with people by, by being complicit. Mm -hmm. I believe it. Um, that's not church. It's not Jesus. Anybody, anybody, I challenge anybody who says it is. Yeah, this is, um, are we going to talk about the difference between nice and kind? Let's do that. <laughs> yeah, ni nice, is, nice is like my least favorite word ever. I think, mm. I've, I think I've shared that with you multiple times. Mm. Yeah, um, I, it was a few years ago where I heard someone talk about this, and I appreciated the difference between nice as really kind of a societal function of um, politeness, right, of whatever polite society is, uh, which is ultimately a set of rules to keep people in their place, right? And that's how we're, it's, it's how to be cordial or how to, how to function and what polite society looks like. Um, whereas kindness, I think, is definitely more Christ-like and could involve more truth-telling. Yeah, kindness, kindness is not mealy-mouth, kind of, you know, just get along. Mm -hmm. um, it is it's speaking truth, and it's um, beyond that, it's speaking truth to power. So... Um, we begin our relationships by telling the truth with each other, and our relationships go bad when we fail to, te to tell the truth with each other. I mean, this is kind of basic stuff that you and I do with couples who are being married, um, because people come in to get married and think it's easy. Getting married, <laughs> is, getting married is the easy part. Staying married is hard, and the, and the hard part about it is the consistent telling of truth, because once you don't tell the truth, the damage that gets done, getting back to a, a place of equilibrium, is, is the hardest thing in the world. Lots of couples don't make it. Yeah. In the same way, we do that in the church. Uh, the church fails 
when we think we can't tell truth with each other, which is why small groups and, and small, because it's hard in worship, right? You and I get to talk. Yeah, worship's not really yeah. a place for a lot of mutual conversation or truth-telling. Yeah. It's maybe a starting point. But. It, it, it might, well, I think we model it, right? I think we model it as pastors, and it's part, it's part of what I appreciate about there being two of us, because we get to be truthful with one another. Sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's easy, it's sometimes funny, and, uh, and sometimes not. Um, but people get to see our working out um, a place where we may not fully agree and how, how do we talk about it? How do we make clear that we're hearing each other? Mm-hmm. I think the other element of kindness in addition to telling the truth is uh, telling the truth without uh, the desire to injure. And like that part I think is important to kindness as well. Because uh, for a long time, I could tell the truth real good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it could be a little spicy. Um, and I, I sometimes uh, would do that without, without being kind, right? Without thinking through how it could be received. So I think that's another beautiful element of kindness that um, would help us in our, in our modeling of what that could look like in the church, in our, in our workplaces, you know. When we vote. Speaking, speaking the truth in love is the way we've kind of come to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think sometimes we, we confuse that love with just being just being nice. Mm. And where love is, that's really hard work. Mm-hmm. It is. And it's, and, it's, and it's not... Sometimes when we get into these conversations in the church, we go passive-aggressive pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. So we we act nice, but then the background is aggression, and that's harmful. That is harmful. I agree, and it's uh, in a lot of ways that's kind of normative in a lot of places mm-hmm. in the church and workplaces. Um, this finding the line between telling the truth and and you know trying to not injure one another and understand that people might think you're a jerk, you know, just because it conflicts with them or it's not their experience. Like, that's hard. Yeah. And uh, I think particularly if you're socialized in, um, in specific family systems or into a specific gender identity or whatever else, you know, there are expectations of what that might look like. So I'm curious... You, before the sermon, this is, a, this is a snippet into our conversation, everyone. Barry thought, or said to me, that his take on Barbie was going to be a lot different from mine. And I don't know that I experienced that, so I'm curious. Cool. Yeah, I'm curious, um, yeah, what more you would say about that. Well, I think I, think I thought so, and I, I would love to hear you do the same sermon, <laughs> um, which would be really interesting. I, I, I sort of see it. Um, uh, what sort of, so, so I'm, I'm seeing the telling of patriarchy, right, through my own eyes as an old white guy with gray hair, or, or less and less gray hair. <laughs> um, and so, so I'm interpreting the whole thing through my lens of patriarchy. I'm part of that working to be critical, working to be a risk taker within that, but still within that. So I thought that you would see 
you would be, do better at seeing it from the vantage point of the Barbies who are who are adapted um, mm. within within their own lives largely by other girls, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Are postured and are played with, and so, and I I couldn't do a lot of commentary around that. Sure. Yeah. But I, so I, I was thinking that you would see that very differently. That piece is very differently. Oh, yeah. I think perhaps. I mean, it's interesting because, um, you know, I've had to think a lot about the times I too am complicit in patriarchy, even though it actively harms me. You know, it's normative. Sure. And I think especially as a white woman um, living into an anti-racist identity, there are choices... Uh, where I have to think a lot about who, you know, who am I going to align myself with in this in this situation, which is the question you asked. It's very easy for white women um, to always choose the side of patriarchy um, and, and ultimately whiteness uh, as yeah. a shield to protect us. So it is it is an interesting place to be both oppressed and oppressor. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've thought about that quite a bit, and I, I'm hopeful that will resonate with others of us kind of in that same situation. Um, and it's hard also, you know, because there's no way to get it right. <laughs> like, there are ways to get it right, but there's no way to get it perfect. And, and the, um, I think part of what Barbie speaks to, and I've said it's kind of a, a, it's a weak feminism, I think it puts out there. I, you mentioned the binary, and I, I don't think that's all that helpful. I still think it's a really great movie to see and it sparks a lot of conversation and um, uh, white womanhood requires perfectionism and so having to just understand like oh no when you seek to not be the oppressor <laughs> or you seek to dismantle systems of oppression it ne it necessarily means making mistakes and failing mm -hmm. that was hard that was like when I first started grappling with that um, that was really hard. And to not center yourself in the making of the mistake, uh, that's hard too. Say more about what you mean by centering, by not centering yourself. Um, well, I think particularly when it comes to um, matters of race, you know, there's like the, the phrase white women tears, mm -hmm. right? Like I'm, I'm going to screw up and I just need to get past it and not make a, you know, a scene about it. Um, and learn how to process my feelings in my own time and space so I don't center myself or take up any time unnecessary or, you know, implicitly ask people of color to do work caring for me when I'm the person who kind of made the mistake. Um, and, yeah, that the necessity of failing and then learning how to fail. Uh, that, that was, and I'm, you know, I'm, I have that, I know that reality. I'm still working on that actively, but was several years ago, maybe when I first started seminary, maybe my first year that I was like, oh, if I'm going to be anti-racist, that means I have to learn how to fail well. And I thought I'm not supposed to fail. And it was hard. It, it is. It's hard. It's hard to fail. It's also hard um, to train ourselves not to make excuses for our failure. Because mm. that tends to be the next thing we do is I did that because. Mm. Rather than just saying, I, yeah, working on it, failed. Yeah. Well, I think, too, um, you know, when we talk about patriarchy, when we talk about, uh, quote, old white men, unquote, <laughs> <laughs> you 
you know, it's. I love being quoted. I, that was your own. That was your own <laughs> I know, quote. I, know. Not, I didn't say it. I said I love being quoted. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think it's hard too to remember to not make excuses for yourself, but to understand that you are all of us were in every way conditioned for a particular outcome, and so it is. It is. You have to do a lot of hard work to not kind of right. go in that direction. And that's when we talk about being countercultural. It is. It has to be highly intentional. You have to be thinking about it and actively practicing it and trying it. So, of course, when everything in society is pushing you to be a particular thing, when you're not that thing, um, that's, that is the resistance. Like, that, that in itself, it's, resistance is hard. It means there's friction. It means there's work that has to be done. It means there's heat. Yes. And... Um, yeah, that's that's real, and it's a thing we don't uh, we don't always lean into the discomfort of that. No. Yeah, and we because should. it's far more comfortable to be who we are. It's it's easy, and it's to our benefit, mm-hmm. our cultural benefit. So it's to our economic benefit, it's to our social status benefit, and so when we make a choice not to do that, it's a choice to step down from our place of privilege. Yeah, I was going to say, for, for some of us, it is to all of those things. It is to our social and cultural and yeah. economic, and um, for sure, but not for all of us. And that's why the, yeah, that's where the resistance begins. True story. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, did you go down any rabbit holes? Oh, I wanted to. There were so many places I, I wanted to go. Um, Yeah, I, I really, my first rabbit hole is I went and went down uh, and compared the two pharaohs. Oh. What's going on with them, which was, you know, that was really interesting to me. Yeah. Um, that's the place I wanted to go. I also wanted to do the characters of divinity in, in Barbie. Um, and it's fascinating because, because God, per se, does not appear in the, the Egyptian tale, right? The, the tale of Moses. God does not appear. Oh, you did a really beautiful job of pointing that out. I liked that. And, <laughs> and it's true for Barbie as well. God is not there except we've got these two really um, really compelling characters. First shows up as uh, Weird Barbie. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't go into all of that, but, but I wanted to go down because I really saw that person as a, a figure of divinity. But then Ruth, the creed, the, who we come to know as the creator of Barbie, is, is fascinating, uh, mm-hmm. counter, kind of a counterpoint to Weird Barbie. Love oh. to do that. Love to do that. Yeah. I mean, I, we started that conversation at Studio Grill. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where, where all the best conversations begin. Over mm-hmm. pancakes, for sure. <gasps> um, Blueberry pancakes. Yeah, as a small aside, sometimes in my head, um, I relabel our messages with like what I think would be funny and kind of like the friends style where it's like the one where, and in this one I labeled in my head the one where Barry tells us to be like weird Barbie, <laughs> which I think is right. Um, but yeah, I, I, I appreciated both of those in the movie. And again, I've heard so many folks say that they're going to see it now because you told them to go see it. Wow. So wow. Who knew? Wow. Who knew? You're secretly working for Mattel over there. But. It must have been pretty good because there, there, there were, I will not give names, but there was another couple, uh, there were multiple people at Full City, at least when I went over for lunch. And the waitress came around and said, your bill's been taken care of by somebody else from your congregation. Wow. Like, wow. 
Wow. It was a good I don't know whether that's because they're going to be gone for eight weeks and they really like the sermon. I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe both. Maybe both. Yeah. Yeah. So this will be, be it for me for a while. Mm-hmm. You are on your own. Wow, that sounded ominous. <laughs> on your own. But I hear on you have... On my own. Yeah. Oh, let's do that. I like that song. Um, but you're going to have guests coming in to do I these am. podcasts. I'm excited for you. Yeah, I'm sure none of you would want to just hear me talking to myself. That that might accidentally happen a week talking or two. Talking to myself and feeling old. Um, <laughs> That'll be me on my eight week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I have some special uh, guests coming. Some are... Um, some other pastors, some are friends uh, in the congregation who listen. Um, <laughs> so I know they know what there's, we do. There's three of those. <laughs> there's three or four of those. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm hopeful we'll be able to keep this going and have some wonderful conversations. And then um, perhaps uh, after Barry gets back, we can, um, we can do a special, a catch-up yeah. on all the ways in which he was renewed. I'm actually going to be doing some recording on the trip. Wow. So we might use some, because, because I'm going to be driving a lot, so, and I want to do writing, so some of what I'm going to be doing is going to be taping as I'm driving some things I want to say. Taping, you know, eh? A, taping, eh? Mm, taping, taping, eh? Do you have a dictaphone, or are you going to use your... <laughs> no, I have a secretary who will be with me. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Wonderful. I'm guessing you'll probably use your phone, but... My yeah. phone will be not in my hand, but on the, on the holder because I am a good law-abiding, law-abiding citizen. citizen. <laughs> <laughs> well, friends, on that note, um, I will see you back here next week. And I will see you back here in about eight weeks. Be well. Mm-hmm.